Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ramesh Paneru, a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. Our guest today is the first in our 2024 series, The Candidates, former Vice President Mike Pence. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Mr. Vice President. Great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, uh, thanks for your clarion voice uh, in the public debate. You know how much we admire you. Thank you so much. Um, Well, as I'm sure you've seen, uh, Mr. Vice President, John Kelly the former chief of staff to President Trump, yesterday confirmed that on several occasions, Trump had expressed a low opinion of members of the armed forces. I wonder if he ever expressed such an opinion in your presence and what you think it says about whether he should be commander in chief again. Well, look, uh, Ramesh, first off, I'm I'm running for president of the United States because I think this country's in a lot of trouble. I think Donald Trump had his time, and Joe Biden doesn't know what time it is. Uh, American families are hurting under the failed policies of Bidenomics. Inflation over the last two and a half years hit a 40-year high. Gasoline prices are still through the roof following the war on energy. And, of course, the the crisis at our border following Joe Biden's open border policies is impacting lives uh, through uh, the flow of fentanyl, in particular, in every community in this country, plus 5 million people coming into the United States. And and I step forward in this race uh, uh, because I think different times call for different leadership. And I think the American people want a fresh start, uh, but a start back on the timeless conservative agenda that uh, you articulate so well uh, that, uh, that Ronald Reagan first brought to the fore, but it didn't originate with him. Uh, the conservative agenda that we governed on uh, for four years, and uh, uh, whether whether it be uh, the strong stand we took uh, uh, for our military and national defense, strong stand for American leadership in the world, uh, a growing economy with less taxes, less regulations, more American energy, or or appointing judges that uh, would respect our our core liberties. So these are all the things that bring me uh, to this race, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, it, it, as I said just the other day, with, with, you know, with regard to uh, the former president's comments about uh, about General Milley in a recent tweet, uh, look, it, it, uh, just inexcusable uh, to use words like treason uh, and uh, and death in a, in a tweet about uh, about any American, let alone someone. Uh, who has worn the uniform of the United States for some four decades. I, I can tell you, I, I, I never recall hearing the president speak that way about members of the military, but I, I, I would also say that my respect uh, for General John Kelly is, is boundless, uh, and uh, you know, I'll leave it at that. All right. Um, let's talk a little about the economic policies of the administration in which you served. Um, of course, on trade, uh, that administration made some pretty significant changes in traditional orientation of U.S. policy. And I'm wondering, would a Pence administration follow in that, in those footsteps, or would it go back to something a little bit closer to the previous consensus on free trade? 
Well, I, I gave a speech about China just about a week and a half ago, uh, having given the very first major address during our administration in 2018, where we announced a change uh, in our policy toward China. Look, uh, for, for more than 20 years, uh, America had hoped that with greater economic exchange that China would embrace uh, greater liberties, a respect for private property, uh, that uh, uh, for religious freedom and political freedom. But what we've witnessed in the last 20 years is the opposite has been true, and it's the reason I strongly support the $250 billion in tariffs that we've imposed on China. I mean, after years of trade abuses and intellectual property theft, it's it's time to stand firm against China, and that day continues to this day. But as I said two weeks ago, with regard to trade, I, I was proud to travel the country advocating uh, the USMCA. It became the largest trade deal in American history. Uh, we were able to, to level the playing field with our trading partners and, and, uh, and, and really put the interest of American workers and American farmers um, uh, first and foremost in trade policy. But my view going forward is what I like to call free trade with free nations. Uh, I think we ought to continue to stand firm with China and other authoritarian regimes uh, that would engage in the kind of trade abuses that we've witnessed from China in recent decades. But with regard to the UK, with regard to the EU, with regard to Japan, other free nations around the world, uh, I promise you that a Pence administration would vigorously pursue uh, free trade agreements that would open uh, the markets for what we make and for what we grow. And I think that'll greatly benefit America, as well as advance our, our interest and our values on the world stage. So I, I, that's what I say, Ramesh, is free trade with free nations. Uh, but America needs to continue to stand firm against China regarding their abuses and uh, leave aside uh, their military provocations in the Asia Pacific and an appalling record of human rights abuses um, mm -hmm. against Muslim Uyghurs, Christian pastors, and their own people. You were, of course, the head of the COVID task force in 2020. Uh, and I'm wondering if looking back on it now, um, you think that uh, there's anything that uh, the administration should have done differently? Well, look, when I was tapped at the end of February uh, to lead the White House Coronavirus Task Force, the president had established that task force a few months earlier. Um, and we had not lost a single American life to COVID the week that I was added. But within a short period of time, we understood the sheer magnitude uh, of, uh, of this pandemic. And, and we took strong steps early on to make sure that we had supplies uh, for the hospitals and healthcare facilities in the major cities that were being impacted. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of states like New York, New Jersey, um, cities like, uh, like Seattle and Detroit uh, and New Orleans. Um, but, uh, but as time went on, those temporary measures to essentially buy us time to spin up supplies were used by many Democrat governors uh, and many Democrat mayors around the country to impose months on end of lockdowns that greatly harmed uh, kids in our schools, greatly harmed American families and businesses. I mean, we, we stepped up and made sure that families and businesses had the support that they need. But uh, but the impact of those lockdowns, I think, is going to be felt for years in this country. And uh, and so I think I think going forward, while I always, as a former governor, always have a great 
uh, deference to our our Tenth Amendment system of federalism, uh, I, I do believe that uh, that uh, ensuring that uh, we don't see the kind of excesses uh, from uh, from uh, uh, Democrat and, and liberal governors uh, in the future when the next pandemic hits, I think would be a lesson learned. And uh, but I think there's so much to learn. You know, at the end of the day, there's not a day goes by that I don't think of. Uh, of the extraordinary efforts the American people made during the worst pandemic in a hundred years. I mean, we we reinvented testing at a standing start. We saw to the delivery and manufacture billions of supplies and equipment, and of course developed three safe and effective vaccines in nine months in, in record time. And uh, uh, as, as I wrote uh, in my book uh, last year, uh, title of that chapter, Ramesh, was Only in America. It was American innovation, American generosity, American compassion, that saw us through. And I'll always be proud of what the American people accomplished, particularly during those early days of the pandemic. Uh, the administration also clashed, however, with Republican governors like Brian Kemp in Georgia when they reopened uh, more quickly than City President Trump th thought that they should. In retrospect, who made the right call? Well, clearly Governor well, clearly Brian Kemp made Brian the right Kemp. call. When, you know, when I was tapped, <laughs> When I was tapped to uh, lead the task force, um, uh, we already had plenty of doctors on the task force that Donald Trump had appointed. Uh, I appointed Larry Kudlow. Uh, I appointed the Secretary of the Treasury. I knew whatever we needed to do to make sure that we had the supplies uh, that we and, and the health care that we would want any member of our family uh, to be able to have. Um, I, I knew that the first priority would be to get the economy moving again and to fully brief the president on the impact uh, on the uh, on the economy going going forward and so you know when we came out in the the middle of april with a with a plan to open up america again um you know i i literally traveled uh, to georgia thereafter in in support of governor brian kemp i traveled to florida uh and got a pizza with governor ron DeSantis. uh governor doug ducey also came under fire for opening up uh, the president uh, president was, uh, you know, giving voice to what some of the doctors were saying, complaining about it. But uh, uh, I was cheering them on uh, and uh, and telling them that uh, we just needed to open America back up again. And frankly, by the end of the summer, uh, Secretary Betsy DeVos and I literally traveled to schools around the country to implore, to implore. Uh, states and governors to reopen our schools. That uh, in fact. Other than in those early days where we encouraged distance learning, we never encouraged states to close schools. But you saw many of the states around the country literally closing schools, uh, creating an education that was simply was not based uh, on on risk or science. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, my my deep conviction all through that year was to was to fight to reopen the economy, to get our schools back open again. Uh, and uh, and you bet those those governors who either never closed uh, or opened uh, early and and uh, and led the way, uh, I believe uh, I believe the American people are grateful for them and for their leadership, whatever President Trump had to say at the time. You have a very extensive uh, resume, particularly when you compare it to some of the other candidates in the field as a congressman, governor, vice president. As you campaign, are you finding that voters still value that kind of governmental experience 
or uh, is that something they're not looking for anymore? Well, look, I, you know, I think I said at the at the top of our conversation. I think everywhere I go, the American people are deeply concerned about the state of our our country, and uh, uh, and and uh, whether it be at the at the uh, at the pancake festival in Centerville, Iowa, this last weekend, or uh, or everywhere I've traveled, people come up and they, they thank me for running. Uh, they recognize that uh, I I am. Uh, uh, not only uh, uh, the most consistent conservative in this race, but I'm also the most qualified, the most experienced. I'm, I'm the only one in this race that has White House experience, that was a leader in the Congress of the United States, and also also led a state uh, as governor. And, uh, and and I think people understand that that now is the time for us to bring experience to bear, to secure our border, to revive our economy, and especially with war raging in Eastern Europe, China continuing its military provocations, Iran back to sowing its malign influence across the region. I think the American people know uh, now is not the time for on-the-job training. Well, uh, we, we need a president who will bring the experience and bring the energy to the Oval Office on day one to turn this country around. Uh, and more and more people every day recognize that I'm that person, and I'm grateful for it. Joe Biden is 80 and would be 86 at the end of a second term. Donald Trump is 77. Is there some point at which someone is simply too old to be president of the United States? Well, first let me say, well, first I, let me say Joe Biden all the time. He was, uh, he was a senator when I was a congressman. He was a vice president when I was governor. And, um, you know, he's always been that wrong. I mean, I, th I think I think it was Secretary Robert Gates who served under Republican and Democrat presidents who said that Joe Biden has been wrong about every major foreign policy decision for the last 40 years. 40 so, years. So when when I look when at I look the, at the disastrous policies uh, that uh, Bidenomics, when I look at the war on energy, when I look at uh, that disgraceful uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan that so dishonored the service and sacrifice. Uh, of uh, uh, our men and women in uniform over the last 20 years. I, I, look, I know where the buck stops, and I know who made those calls, and that was Joe Biden, and that's not a function of age. Uh, that's a function of, of judgment. Uh, but, but I would say secondarily, look, I, I've said before, Ramesh, I, I, in these challenging times, we don't need a president who's too old, and we don't need a president who's too young. I mean, everywhere I go, people stop me on the street, Stop me at those county fairs and uh, festivals, and uh, and and they 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 kind of lean in and say thank you for running, because they know that this is a time where we have to have someone with the experience, but also with the energy, to meet that moment. And uh, uh, the, you know there are some in this race that are calling for competency tests. There's some people talking for uh, you know raising the age requirement for people when they can vote. Look, I. I, I trust voters on all these questions. I think voters can sort it out, but we're going to continue to lay out uh, my judgment that we're, we're going to be ready on, on day one, if given the opportunity, not just to lead our party uh, to victory in 24, but also uh, to bring our country back in a way that uh, will serve the interest of all of the American people. At St. Anselm College a few weeks ago, you gave a speech about the dangers of populism rising in the Republican Party. And I wondered if you could tell us what what's your definition of populism? What is it and, and what's wrong with it? 
Well, what I actually said was um, that Republicans face a Republican time for choosing. And Ronald Reagan gave that famous speech back in 1964 in the Goldwater campaign in which he talked about a time for choosing for the country. Uh, it would be a decade and a half later before the country made the choice uh, for a president uh, uh, in, in our 40th president who would um, stand for a strong military and American leadership in the world for less government, less taxes and traditional moral values on the national stage. That to me is the broad-based conservative agenda. And what, what I've sensed is that there are voices in our party, including my former running mate and some of his imitators in this race who um, are, uh, are walking away from that traditional conservative agenda and embracing a populism unmoored to conservative principles. And, and by that, I mean, where we've been the party of a strong defense and American leadership in the world, where in our administration, uh, we stood up to our enemies. Uh, we stood with our allies on the world stage. We, we, were, uh, we exercised our role as leader of the free world. Now we have many voices in our party that are embracing a new isolationism. Uh, that are saying that we can't we can't be the leader of the free world and also solve the problems facing uh, the American people. And uh, I, I reject that suggestion. I believe that's a false choice. Uh, I mean, look, as I've said, and anybody that says that we can't solve the problems here at home and be the leader of the free world has a pretty small view of the greatest nation on earth. We can do both with the right leadership, just as we've done for decades. Uh, on taxes, uh, I, I would tell you, you know, we we passed the largest tax cuts and tax reform in American history uh, in 2019. I labored on Capitol Hill to uh, help move that legislation, uh, created seven million good-paying jobs, a booming economy, record unemployment uh, for African Americans and Hispanic uh, Americans, uh, and yet now uh, Donald Trump is actually calling for what would be the largest tax on imports uh, proposed since Smoot-Hawley uh, and the Hoover administration. Donald Trump is actually calling for a 10% tax on all goods coming into the United States of America, things that Americans buy literally every day. And at a time when we've seen inflation rise uh, to a 40-year high in the last two and a half years, the last thing that we should do is raise the cost of goods uh, at the retail counter for working Americans. And finally, on, on uh, so it's not just about American leadership. It's not just about uh, taxes, but also, uh, frankly, I see, I see uh, the former president and, and others in our party that are shying away uh, from championing the cause of the right to life. You, you've known me a long time, Ramesh. You know I'm, I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. I champion the right to life as a congressman, as a governor. Uh, and I couldn't be more proud that our administration appointed three of the justices that overturned Roe v. Wade and gave America a new beginning for life. Uh, all that said, just in, in recent weeks alone, uh, Donald Trump has called a pro-life legislation that's been adopted in states across the country uh, that, that uh, bans abortion uh, after an unborn child's heartbeat can be detected. He referred to that as a, quote, terrible mistake. Uh, he's been unwilling to commit to a minimum national uh, standard and uh, uh, and others in the field have as well. So you know, I I really do think that whether it's American leadership in the world, uh, whether it's a commitment to less taxes, less regulation, 
uh, whether it's an unwavering commitment to the right to life. I'm I'm the most consistent conservative in this race, and from Donald Trump to uh, uh, others uh, in the field that uh, that follow his lead, uh, there there is a real choice for Republican voters. And uh, and look, this isn't just a, a philosophical argument. I. I was drawn to the Republican Party because of those core principles that Ronald Reagan gave voice to. Uh, and uh, they revived America uh, in the 1980s and literally changed the world. We governed on them during the Trump-Pence administration. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to continue to stand firm, not just because of my conservative convictions, but because I know putting those American priorities and principles into practice is the best way back to a boundless future of security and prosperity for all the American people. So what do you make, since you referred to the uh, the post-Dobbs landscape of abortion policy, what do you make of the string of referendum defeats that pro-lifers have gone through? Is that a warning sign to pro-life Republicans? Well, I, you know, there, there were a few of them that uh, where there was actually some confusion about whether a yes or a no was a pro-life vote. I was tracking those pretty closely. Uh, but uh, look, when when Donald Trump blamed midterm losses uh, on uh, on overturning Roe versus Wade, I just categorically reject that. I, I campaigned in 35 states in the midterms. And I will tell you uh, that um, uh, our candidates who stood strong on their conservative principles and focused on the future did very well. The candidates that lost in 2022 in, in states and in races that we should have won were candidates often endorsed by Donald Trump who were focused on the past, particularly focused on relitigating the past. I mean, look, Ramesh, elections are about the future. Uh, and uh, our midterm elections, which which disappointed many Republicans who were looking looking for a red wave that became a red ripple. Um, I, I, I know the president, uh, the president uh, laid, laid the blame at our historic victory for the right to life. Uh, uh, I, for my part, uh, it was very clear that, uh, that we lost states, we lost districts in places where people were caught up uh, in relitigating the past. Everywhere I go, the American people the American people are looking for men and women in public life who are going to focus on what they're focused on, deal with what they're dealing with, the concerns they have uh, about a about an open border uh, and the, the flow of humanity and fentanyl into our communities, the the crime wave in our major cities that's uh, that largely being driven by liberal prosecutors that are refusing to prosecute crimes. Uh, the the pr promoting a critical race theory and a radical gender ideology in our schools that that is all, that is giving great motivation to uh, states to to empower every parent to choose where their children go to school and of course in the economy uh, Joe Biden's taxes and regulation and war on energy are just crushing the vitality uh, out of our nation and uh, so uh, th the American people are going to reward the candidates, they're focused on what they're focused on, and uh, that's where I'm going to stay focused. One of the things that Americans are focused on, of course, is inflation. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, first of all, on that front, uh, what you think of Jay Powell's leadership at the Federal Reserve? Well, I think, I well, think I Jay think, Powell I think Jay uh, should be replaced at the end of his term. Um, look, it's... Uh, um, and, and I also think more 
more than just personnel, Ramesh. Uh, it was a decade ago that I authored legislation that would end what's called the dual mandate at the Federal Reserve. Somewhere along the way, decades ago, we we looked at the Federal Reserve and we said, uh, we don't want you just to protect the integrity of the dollar. We also want you to promote policies that will encourage full employment. And so there's it's this dual mandate, I think, has uh, uh, result, you know, has resulted in the kind of the kind of policies that we saw back, uh, not to be too granular, but we saw back in the days of quantitative easing, right? We essentially free money out there for years. Uh, we saw the Wall Street uh, collapse and uh, the Wall Street bailout that followed that I vigorously opposed. And and so I think our monetary policy uh, would do well to get back to the kind of philosophy manifested in people like Judy Shelton, who I strongly supported for appointment to the Federal Reserve, and uh, people that believe in the free market. But also, if I'm president of the United States, I'm, I'm going to go to the Congress and say, we're going to end the dual mandate. I, look, I think we ought to look to presidents, to senators, to congressmen, uh, to governors, uh, and, and local elected leaders when we're demanding full employment. I mean, that part of it is, I, I just, I think it's... Uh, I think it's antithetical to this uh, to the democratic process in our country that we uh, one administration after another tends to have to stand outside the Federal Reserve hat in hand and hope that they uh, pursue policies and interest rates that'll get Americans working. That that ought to be the job of the president of the United States uh, and the Congress, and we can hold them all accountable for that. Uh, while we hold the Federal Reserve accountable for protecting what's in our wallets. You know, and at a time that we see the BRICS countries, you know, trying to do their level best uh, to uh, to introduce a new reserve currency on the world stage, now more than ever, we need solid decisions at the Federal Reserve uh, that will protect the American dollar. And uh, uh, personnel and policy changes, I think, are the pathway forward. Let's talk about elected officials and their responsibility to the Constitution. You have said that on January 20, excuse me, on January 6th of 2021, President Trump asked you to choose between him and the Constitution, and you had to do your duty to the Constitution. I'm wondering if you think that the run-up to January 6th and that day was a break from Trump's previous behavior and respect for the Constitution, or were there signs that he had a troubling disregard for the Constitution all along? I, I will tell you, I think I think January 6th was a tragic day. Um, and I, the president and I had a very good working relationship for four years. I, um, you know, I, I, I recounted that in great detail in my book. I said, president, not just my president, he was my friend. I'm, incredibly proud of the partnership that we forged. Uh, and I, I can honestly tell you that in the four years until the run-up to January 6th, we never had a crossword between us, Ramesh, and I know which, um, which surprises a lot of people, but there was a great deal of respect uh, in our relationship. I think he understood uh, what I brought to the administration. Uh, he listened to my counsel. Uh, and I was grateful for that. But somewhere along the way in the, the weeks uh, leading up to the end of 2020 and uh, the days leading up to January 6th, something changed. Um, and the president stopped listening uh, to uh, 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 some of the, the authoritative legal voices around him. 
And he stopped listening uh, to me, and he started listening to a group of crackpot lawyers who should have never been allowed on the White House grounds to begin with, who told him uh, what uh, what I like to say his itching ears wanted to hear. And uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, for my part, uh, uh, the the tragedy of that day, of course, was the loss of life, the injury of law enforcement officers, the vandalism at our Capitol uh, building. Uh, but uh, the fact that uh, in in the days leading up that uh, the president turned uh, turned a deaf ear uh, to those of us uh, who were uh, taking a strong stand for what uh, what the Constitution required of us uh, in that moment, um, you know, I, I I really do believe that uh, uh, history will judge Donald Trump uh, for that day. I would I would have rather that we left it to history and to the American people as opposed to uh, the, uh, the the criminal litigation that's underway in our nation's capital. But, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, I know I did my duty that day. By God's grace, um, I kept the oath to the Constitution that I'd taken on that cold day in January of 2017. And, uh, um, and you know, I just thought it was important from the time I announced my campaign for people to know that, that President Trump asked me to put him over the Constitution. Uh, I had made it clear to him in the days leading up to January 6, what I believe my oath to the Constitution required of me to preside over a joint session of Congress where the electoral uh, votes were opened and counted, objections could be heard, but my role was very clear. I made it clear that no vice president in American history had ever asserted the authority to reject or return votes uh, to the states, but. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, he was persuaded uh, by other voices, but I know we did the right thing. And I must tell you, Ramesh, uh, I've, I've been incredibly moved all the way through the, you know, this weekend in Iowa, how many people over the last two and a half years have come up to express their appreciation for the stand we took that day. And um, they sometimes speak about me and, uh, and about my uh, character, and I always just look at them and answer the same way. God's grace. We are unfortunately out of time, Mr. Vice President. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ramesh. Very good, very good to be with you today, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.